Welcome to Euros Harley's Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here's your host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and welcome to the final episode for 2023 of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. On behalf of all of us at Euros Hartley's, we would like to thank all our Finding the Front listeners for their support over the year. Our listenership has just grown and grown. We're also massively appreciative of the feedback we have received and for those who have shared the podcast with family, friends, clients and colleagues. As you know, Euros Harley's is a proudly Western Australian and leading diversified financial services company. For us to be able to showcase to Australia and beyond our corporate leaders and allow our listeners to share in the opportunity to get to know them and hear their journeys is a real privilege. We have had some amazing guests on this show and the stories just don't get old. And each time you listen to an episode, you learn something more. We wish to thank again every single one of our guests that have joined us so far. So, with 2023 coming to a close, all of us at Euros Hartley's wish everyone a very Merry Christmas, a safe and relaxing holiday, and all the very best for 2024. Now, to finish off the year, what an episode we have for the Euros Hartley's Finding the Front listeners. It's seriously a real treat. Our very special guest is none other than Mr. Robert Scott, the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of one of Australia's most well-known and highly respected companies, the iconic West Farmers. Rob is a high achiever. A dual Olympian in rowing, winning the silver medal in the 1996 Atlanta Games. A dedicated family man and only the eighth Chief Executive Officer in West Farmer's 100 plus year history. A position he took on in 2017. Need I say more? There really are so many takeaways in this broad ranging conversation covering a wide array of topics that Rob provides his views on. It is just so insightful. So, without further ado, it gives me an enormous pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of West Farmers, Mr. Robert Scott. Hi Rob, and a huge welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. I think all our listeners would appreciate that your time is extremely precious and so we really do appreciate you taking the, the time out of your busy day to, to join us. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. That's so good to have you on the show. So Rob, with the podcast, uh, with Finding the Front, it's all about getting to know the person as as you know and it's customary with with what we try and cover is to start out with some of your background and where you, where you grew up. And I, I know you were born in Perth. But you grew up in a, a, a sort of a mix of the regional areas. That's right. So both my parents were teachers and you know, part of being a teacher is moving around to different schools as you're getting promoted. So spent a bit of time in places like Kalgoorlie. Uh, I went to school in Narragin for a while where my dad was the district head at uh, Dumble Young oh, Senior yeah. High yep. School. Um, yeah, so moved around a bit but also spent a bit of time in Perth growing up. How did you find changing schools? 
easy enough or challenging at times? Oh, look, it's one of those things I didn't know any different. You just yeah. did it. Um, yeah. And I think I went to about six or seven schools. Um, and, look, I think you learn a lot about fitting in and resilience and so forth. Um, and I think I'm certainly better for it. But, yeah, it's, it's challenging as a kid in terms of, you know, new friendships and yeah. and yeah. so forth. You ended up back in Perth, though. Did your parents get a role teaching back in Perth? That's right. So I finished my schooling at Rossmine yeah. uh, and was I was actually there at the start of my high school time and then went off to Narragin and then came back to Rossmine. Uh, so spent most of my high school at those two schools. Rossmine was a great time of life, I'm sure, growing up. When you were going through school, did you enjoy it? Well, look, I, I really did enjoy learning stuff, um, but, and I, but I'm probably looking back in hindsight saying, yeah, wasn't it great learning all that stuff and all those experiences? But I think at the time, like most kids, there's probably more things that frustrate you than you enjoy about school. But look, at the end of the day, I I think I was really fortunate to have parents that were teachers that really instilled in me the importance of education. But in a really positive way, it was that there's just so much to learn and so much to learn about in the world and that it was really a passport for, you know, for doing fun things and enjoyable things in the future. So, you know, I, I certainly tried to take that on board. Did you have any inkling in, into what you wanted to do when you're at school, when you when you left? Well, it was funny that through, from a very early stage, I was really determined to be a doctor. And it wasn't until I was in about year 11 that I decided, it was when I really started getting into rowing. And I then realised that, well, actually trying to study medicine and be a competitive national rower was a lot harder than <laughs> studying commerce and being a competitive <laughs> rower. So in a way I dropped my, um, and then I found out that you can probably make more money, um, you know, in business than you can as a doctor. So, so you know, that's what led me into uh, the business, uh, the business stream. You touched on rowing. Did And for the listener, Rob is an accomplished rower and we'll get to that, but I just would have, be interested now how did you actually start rowing was it was it a part of Rossmoyne Senior High that you got involved or was it an extra extracurricular thing well it was through school but in a different you know most people associate rowing with school rowing the PSA you know system and so forth but at at Rossmoyne we had a Wednesday afternoon sports elective and you could do 10 pin bowling windsurfing table tennis rowing uh, and, you know, I was reflecting on what to do, and it was my father that said, look, why don't you try something different? Like, do something different, and you'd probably find rowing interesting. So I just went along, and a few of us from the school really enjoyed it, and then uh, off the back of that, we joined one of the local clubs, Swan River Rowing Club. So yes. that, that's how we got into it, a bit of an unorthodox entry into the sport. And and that particular entry happened when was that around 15 or yeah it was uh 15 16 the last couple of years of school the reason i ask is what a decision that was it's like a sliding door moment when you think about it because of the impact it's had on your life not only with sport the rowing the sport but also with your professional career and also your education because I, i noted that you went on to the university of wa but then you were able to accept a rowing scholarship to the Australian Institute of Sport and complete the Bachelor of Commerce at the Australian National University in Canberra. 
Yeah, that's kind of right. What It was interesting what had happened. I was in my second year of university uh, at UWA and I was selected in the under-23 um, Australian Australian rowing team and I had to move to Melbourne for a few months. And uh, as part of that, I was going to miss a couple of tutorials and I went to speak to the dean to say, look, can I get some exemptions from attending these tutorials? And the dean really took me to task and said, look, listen, mate, you either are going to take your you know, your career and your education seriously or you can stuff around with these uh, this silly sport. So I quit UWA, uh, <laughs> went, <laughs> took the year off uni, uh, went and rode in Melbourne and then, uh, for, and then got the scholarship to the AIS and then had oh, that, the opportunity. That's how it happened. Yeah, had the opportunity to finish my degree at ANU. Yes, yes. Gosh, well, so from there... You can see if you look back on that rowing decision, it was a pretty important one because that background led you to a significant career and I'll get to that in a moment. In Education-wise, following, and if I just started with Bachelor of Commerce at ANU, but you went on to do a Master's of Applied Finance degree from Macquarie University and then you've done a grad dip in Applied Finance and Investments. You're a qualified chartered accountant and you've done an advanced management program at Harvard. I touch on that because when you were leaving, you thought, oh, I'll go into commerce rather than medicine. But you clearly got the hang of it. And you, could you see a lot of investment in education being important as part of your career choice? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was interesting back in those days and you know, back in the ninety early 90s, if you wanted to develop your career in business, finance, it was quite common to do the professional year chartered accounting. Yes. Um, that was a very common path. And I so I did that and I could do that through West Farmers. But quite frankly, I didn't really enjoy accounting. So I took up the investment and finance graduate diploma more out of interest and that's what I wanted to learn. Yes. Um, and then that's what ultimately led me to moving away from accounting into more of investments and finance and then banking. As you progressed, your rowing career, and I, for the listener, there's two careers here I'd just like to touch on. The first is professional, the second is rowing. But Rob, I've, I just have no doubt that rowing has had a major influence on your professional career. So I'll start with rowing. When you left uni, you were in full flight rowing flat out and just so for the listener if you want to look at the way this unfolded starting from high school excelled at a high level of rowing as a heavyweight rower you were a national champion an eight-time crewman in the western australian king's cup eights and a four-time australian representative at world rowing championships you're a dual olympian oarsman representing Australia at the age of 21 in the men's eight rowing at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics and in the coxless pair at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. You took home a silver medal with, I'd say, your good friend, David Waitman. That's, the, that's an overview. But at age 21, just could you just give us a little bit of an insight into the hard work you'd put to get to that point? There would have been a lot of early mornings and a lot of discipline that went in to get to that point. Just watching rowing as it is now, you achieved the elite. And I just wanted to understand the commitment it took to get there. Well, I look, I'd always been fascinated in sport. Um, my, my father was a phys ed teacher early on, so I'd always had an interest in sport and 
he was also a very competitive sailor and we were part of a group at Netherlands Yacht Club that went on to you know have various Olympians and so forth so for me as a kid the ultimate was to try and represent your country in in sport yes. and then to try and make it to the Olympic Games and really the the rowing the, you know the interest in rowing came about by just being around like-minded people and having some great coaches and mentors and then all of a sudden realizing that hey this this is possible with yeah. a lot of hard work and determination it's possible it may not be certain but it's possible and uh and it is quite addictive i think you you know when you're training each day and surrounded by people trying to do something quite amazing you can't help but be uh, taken along with yeah, it yeah taken along with it so look i didn't know where it was going to go at first i just aspired to represent my state and then represent the country and then get you know qualify for the olympics and then once you go to the olympics you then want to win a medal and you win a medal and you prefer it to be a gold medal and it just keeps going going <laughs> like that it becomes quite addictive but at age 21 so 1992 you you were asked to represent australia at barcelona just tell us how that felt at that particular time because it was a childhood dream in essence yeah, look, it's a. I still remember the first opportunity I had to put on the green and gold and you know, go out in the Australian rowing suits in the eight back then. And it is you. You put the green and gold on, and you're representing your country. You really do feel ten foot tall. Yeah, uh, it is an amazing feeling, and you 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 also realize. I think most people that have represented their country recognize when they put on the national colours that it's a lot bigger than them individually. You know, you're there representing your country not just representing yourself so it was look a very humbling experience um but it was also a very empowering experience that it was at a point in in australian sport where australia was doing really well and especially in rowing and i remember you know as a kid watching the montreal olympics where australia didn't win a gold medal and all of a sudden as an, an australian athlete certainly a rower there was every likelihood that you could aspire to win a medal Yes. Uh, because we were Australians uh, and it was just you know really fantastic to be a part of a, a cohort of athletes and coaches and others that you know were doing something special. Was the training just every day you know typically rowers get up at 4 30 they're on the river by 5 a.m sort of that sort of commitment to get to Australian level? Yes yeah, certainly it was very intensive and I, I think that time in the early 90s it was a time when we had a lot of east eastern european coaches after the fall of the war the berlin wall come over to australia and they brought a lot of sophistication around sports science yes um and i'm not talking about the injections here <laughs> i'm talking quite <laughs> well thanks for clarifying <laughs> just that. to clarify uh, but no there was a, a very high degree of sophistication around the science of sport and they trained incredibly hard and uh, we did a lot of miles, a lot of training, and it really started to pay off in terms of the results that we're able to deliver through the 90s. So you came fifth in the 92 Olympics in that eight? That's correct. Yeah, right. Yep. So that clearly started a bit of a flame, and uh, you wanted to get back into that Olympics and have a crack again to see where, where else you could go. I just want to pivot quickly and then go back into your career. You... In 1993, so we've just come off the back end of the Barcelona Olympics, he started with, of all companies, West Farmers in 1993, and you were there for a year as a financial accountant. How did you start that role? Because it's, it, I mean, it's the start of the story. 
Well, yeah, it's, it was really interesting. It was after 92, as you say, I was desperate to try and go on and win a, win a medal. But um, I was also a realist that I wasn't getting younger. I needed to get a job. I needed to pay the bills. Um, and fortunately, Ernst & Young had a program called the Olympic Job Opportunity Program that tried to set Olympic athletes up with employers. And the partner in charge of the Perth office of Ernst & Young said to... Uh, Mike Cheney at West Farmers, hey, we've got this young guy we'd like you to meet. He's a commerce graduate uh, to see if there could be some work at at, uh, at West Farmers. So my first job interview ever was with Mike Cheney, the CEO of West Farmers. And I think he gave me a job more out of charity than anything <laughs> else. <laughs> I don't think I had – I didn't have a lot to offer the business world. I had a lot to offer in the boat. <laughs> um, and then, you know, obviously had another very important interview with Mike decades later. But, oh, did you but what? That was that was the start of it. And, you know, without the – and I think, uh, you know, without the support of supportive companies like Ernst & Young and West Farmers – I, w- I wouldn't have gone on to to keep rowing for the Atlanta Olympics. I was going to ask that because you need a degree of flexibility with your employment at this point. And EY provided it uh, because you went on from West Farmers to Ernst & Young and was a consultant for a year as well to, to provide both that balance of sport or rowing and work. That's right, and you know, West Farmers were and Ernst and Young were both really supportive of me. And um, the reason I moved to Ernst and Young was I moved to Canberra and Sydney to train, uh, and it was at a time when West Farmers didn't have any operations over there. So Ernst and Young provided me that opportunity. And it was, look, I'm really indebted to to both West Farmers and Ernst and Young for their support. Obviously. You know, when I was there and available to work, I worked my guts out yes. <laughs> to try and, you know, recognise the support they were providing me. But it, uh, you know, I think the other, and what, what that has done with me is, rec- you know, as a leader now, I realise that people's careers don't necessarily need to be a, a nine to five, five day a week linear path, right? Yes. Um, different people have different things going on in their life and affording affording people flexibility is really important. When you left West Farmers to go over east, did you say, Michael, I'll see you in a, a few years at that point? Or was there any connection as, oh, hopefully, hopefully we'll see you back, Rob? Yeah, well, look, I'd, I'd kept uh, the connection with West Farmers and yeah. it was after the 96 Olympics I, um, I went back and caught up with the team. I still remember the receptionist, Jane McNeil, remembered me you know, by name. <laughs> I hadn't seen her for a few years. Uh, but at that time, I must admit, at that time, I'd really, having studied a lot of investments and finance, I really had a bug to get into investment banking. Yes. And an opportunity arose in Sydney with Deutsche Morgan Grenfell at the time. And I, I spoke to West Farmers and said, look, I'd love to keep in contact, but I you know, really want to get out of Perth and try something new. Okay, um, yeah. If we just, before we skip forward to that time at Deutsche, we look at the 1996 year, right? And, and what a year it was for you. It's quite an amazing period of time. And, and that's when you clearly maintained your momentum with your rowing and you ended up rowing again for Australia at the Atlanta Olympics. In the men's coxless pair rowing, you came second, winning the silver medal. I was reading a quote from the Australian Olympic team website 
olympics.com.au. It says, Dual Olympian Robert Scott enjoyed his finest moment in sport when he won a silver medal with David Waitman in the men's coxless pair in Atlanta. The Aussies peaked superbly at the Games. They won their heat and semi-final in slick fashion, setting up a showdown with famed British pair Steve Redgrave and Matthew Pinsent in the final. The Brits got off to a flying start, but in the final 500 metres of the race, the Australians bravely closed the gap but could not get ahead. Now, you came second. And for everyone listening Myself included, that is an amazing result. You got a silver medal at the Olympics, at the Atlanta Olympics. But I just want to debate this with you. How did you feel? A sense of achievement with the silver? Or did you feel just gutted that you didn't get gold? Uh, well, look, at the time, Dave and I did feel gutted yeah. because we yeah, we set out to, to win. Uh, we really wanted to win. We, we felt we could win. We really put everything out there on the day um, and it, it took us probably a day or two to come to terms with the fact that, okay, we didn't win, but it was hard to know what more we could have done. Yes. Um, but at least for a period of time there, we were very disappointed. Um, but then with the benefit of hindsight and, you know, talking about, well, you know, were we happy with the row? Yes. Did we do everything we planned to? Yes. Um you know, the only two people that beat us have both been knighted. So <laughs> <Is that laughs> I, right? I guess that's some, you know, bit of Steve and Steve and Matthew. That's right. So Stephen and Matthew. Look, but I think we didn't we didn't turn up there to come second. We tried to win, but uh, there was a better crew on the day, and they yes, won. Yes. And they deserved to win. But look, we reconciled. We came to terms with that. But uh, it had been a fantastic year, and uh, it was a really competitive Australian rowing team back there. The Australian rowing team was top of the tables globally and it was just great to be part of such a such a fantastic group of athletes and coaches one of the things i've taken away from just my research on that period of time in your life is the importance of team from your time and as an elite athlete i was reading in an interview where you said uh, individually you need to put yourself through such incredible pain and stress just to compete and somehow you have to mesh that together with others and find this elusive rhythm. You went on to say, you can learn that being in a team means creating an environment where everyone can operate at their optimal. I thought that was just so good. And it's clear to me that you've taken a lot of that on board with your future career and, and your work life. But can you just give us a bit of an insight into that? You know, when you get into that operating rhythm, that elusive rhythm, well, yeah, look, I think I, you can't help but learn it in the sport of rowing. It is really the ultimate team sport. But as I said, you, you have to put yourself through an enormous amount of physical and mental pain yep. <laughs> at, at the same time. But you really do, you really do lot, learn a lot about the synchronicity and the togetherness and the rhythm and the flow. Uh, and um, you, it just becomes quite an addictive thing that you're always striving for a slightly better stroke, a more efficient rhythm, you know, working together as one. And, you know, I think certainly coming out of my experience with rowing in a team environment, you realise that being a team, having a good team is not about eight really good individuals. It's about working together really effectively, leveraging each other's strengths, a bit of give and take when required, 
And, uh, yeah, so I think as a leader, it's about creating that environment to get the best out of people and being as efficient as, and effective as you can be, but also having this relentless sense of always trying to improve. Like if you speak to most rowers, the more successful the rower, the more kind of restless and relentless they are at trying to improve. Right. There is no such thing as the perfect stroke. You're always striving for that perfect stroke. And you hope that the next stroke is going to be a bit better than the last one. And it just never stops. Um, it's the pursuit of excellence. It is. And you, you see that, as you'd know, you'd see it in, in most sports. And, you know, the, the best athletes are just driven by that. And I, I'd say at least what I've observed in business and investments, the best investors, the best managers have that same sense of being a bit restless around doing better. Um, being better, yes. but not about being better individually. It's about being better as a team. Yes, and that's where the training comes in, just lots of it, and being around those same people and getting to know them so well. Absolutely, yeah. And I, look, I think it's like most things, It's um, and if I think about my time together in rowing, the the bonds you forge and the strength you build together often comes at the most difficult, off the back of the most difficult times. And the same in business, when you've been through really difficult things together as a team, uh, you certainly come out the other, you know, you, you have the opportunity to come out the other side even stronger and even more effective. Oh, just fantastic, Rob. And so following 1996, you came out with a silver medal, which was fantastic, but a little bit disappointing for you, obviously. But you decided to effectively start to concentrate on your professional career at that point. And that's where you joined Deutsche in Sydney and Hong Kong. So that's where it started in 1997 and you were there for around seven years. We were talking about this earlier offline, but you know, moving into a role which is based in Sydney and Hong Kong, it's a, it's a different environment. You're in the markets, you're, you're alive. Tell us a little bit about this experience and the pressure of that role. Well, I think the first thing I'd say is I think I was really fortunate to be able to go from very competitive sport to investment banking because it uh, provided the same type of adrenaline boost and <laughs> I was around like-minded people that were, you know, trying to do something special in their own in their own way and it was a, a very intense environment, a very stimulating environment and that, that for me was really, you know, really positive and I just learnt so much. I felt like... Uh, being in that constant flow of market activity, transactions, problem solving, I probably I felt like I was learning about five years worth of learning in one year, um, and I really immersed myself in that. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the intellectual stimulation, and I, I also realised that yeah, there was just so much to learn, and loved the, you know, loved learning about different companies, different industries, different markets. Uh, I just felt like I was, um, you know, a drinking from a fire hose in many ways, yes. just learning so much. What what was the main takeaway in terms of commerce or business that you, you gleaned from this period of time? Like, was there any particular sector, area, transactions? Was there a focus on anything? Well, I think there are a few things. I, I guess I was schooled very much in a lot of analytical rigour. So I started out like most <laughs> young analysts do really getting deeply into the numbers and valuation so I think that always was a really good fit with West Farmers as well given our financial focus there 
we did a lot of work through the 90s in uh, privatisations and so forth where there was that government private sector involvement. So that gave me a lot of exposure and awareness of some of the challenges and issues dealing with governments and the political side and the regulatory side. Yes. Um, and then the final thing I learnt was, you know, I was, I, I was always really interested around investing and understanding the way that uh, personalities and behave, you know, human behaviour can influence outcomes um, for good and bad. So, you know, I observed, I, I'd say in, in investment banking uh, and I, I observed some of the most amazing, smartest, driven people I've ever been exposed to but I also was, you know, saw some of the most personally flawed and culturally flawed yeah. <laughs> individuals I've been exposed to, <laughs> and that's ultimately what kind of encouraged me that hey, it's time to time to go back to West Farmers. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back at that period of time fondly, is in a really pivotal part of your your career in terms of foundation. Oh, look, absolutely, and I look, I was really fortunate to work with Deutsche Bank through that period of time and um, had some great leaders and bosses I worked with and peers and you know people like um, Kerry Schott, Mike Roach, um, Scott Charlton, um, many you know many people I could list out even Naomi Flutter who's now working with West Farmers now was within the team I worked with and um, and there are some fantastic people yes. um, doing some really great things and uh and I, I felt very fortunate to have been part of those teams and, and learnt, a, learnt a hell of a lot. So how did the rejoining West Farmers, which occurred in 2004, so here we are at 2023, so 20 years ago, you rejoined West Farmers, uh, GM Business Projects. So just could you give us a little bit of an insight into how that started and then, and then how it flowed from there? Well, at the time I was in Hong Kong and the nature of the role there was I was, I probably spent 150 days a year on the road. Uh, and I just, we just had our first uh, child. We just had our son, Ben. And yes. I really didn't want to be an absent um, father and husband. Uh, and I just thought, look, the time has come now to, you know, get out of banking into a more corporate role. Right. Um, and that's what led me to reconnect with, with West Farmers. Yes. So it was a, sort of a more of a life and a life work-life balance style decision. Well, not not really because, I, look, I was still really driven. Yes. Um, and you know, we'll get onto this in a sec, no doubt, but my wife Liz is, you know, <laughs> equally driven in her own way, being an Olympic gold medalist. Um, well, so, I was going to yeah. ask. I didn't want to bring it up too early. <laughs> no, but I always like getting that out in, there, in there first. Um, does, it, does it come up much that she won gold and you won silver? It, it does quite a lot. But as <laughs> I, I was actually, I'm used to telling this story. I, you know, I met her before she won her gold medal. So I'd like to say I'm a good judge of talent. <laughs> but uh, but no, look, I think it was more the, you know, I, I always knew that whatever whatever job I did, I needed to be 100% engaged in it. But just, you know, travelling 100, 150 days a year yeah, and yeah. being in banking just for me wasn't wasn't where I wanted to be. And, you know, it made me recognise working with a lot of different companies around the world how unique West Farmers was. Mm. West Farmers is a really unique business uh, company on a global scale and I, I just desperately wanted to... Be a get part back of it. and be a part of it. Yeah. 
So when you when you rejoined, as I say, you spent a couple of years as a general manager in business projects. Then you moved into becoming the managing director and CEO of West Farmers Insurance, which was a really interesting period of time. It's a six-year term you had there, but you had those natural disasters through there that included Christchurch, earthquake, cyclones, bushfires, hailstorms. So did you have a, a strong understanding of insurance when you moved in there? You're, you're in the deep end. Well, I, I, you know, by no means was I an insurance expert when I went into that role. I kind of went into the role off the back of an acquisition we did. We bought a number of insurance broking businesses. Right. I had had exposure to insurance as a banker, but as a banker, you are you're not across the real operational detail as you would expect. Um, but we had some. You know, we were running a portfolio of insurance businesses at the time, and as managing director, you know, I was really fortunate to have that opportunity. But Yes, certainly went through a very, a very steep learning curve. Uh, and as you say, the, the natural disasters we went through, we had, you know, at one stage, you know, we, we, we set our reinsurance levels on the basis of, you know, you know, you might trigger to, you know, you go, might go through your catastrophe cover twice every you know, 50 years. Well, we went through it four times in one year. <laughs> uh, Is that right? Uh, so it was an incredibly challenging time. We had seven government investigations going on in the on the insurance industry at one time yes because all the usual issues came up around bushfire risk flood insurance and so forth um but it's one of those times i guess you reflect on your career and it's often the the most difficult times that you learn the most Mm. uh and that was certainly the case for me do you would have had again coming back to the team you would have had a pretty strong team around you for that Yes, we did, and it was um, it was an interesting time in the industry as well. Insurance, yeah, it is a very relationship based industry. Yes, um, certainly on the intermediated side of insurance and commercial insurance, but it was also an ind- industry that was going through enormous change around leveraging data, data analytics, um, process reengineering to drive efficiencies in claims management and so forth. So you almost had this old school of the art of insurance and the relationships that are just so critical to the industry, combining with a lot of the analytical and the science and the process re-engineering. And one one without the other wouldn't work. You needed to bring the two together. So, yeah, we had a great team. We had really good businesses. And look, at the end of the day, we ended up selling the businesses for a fantastic price for shareholders. Um, but, uh, yeah, but anyway, it was uh, it was a... Re- Fascinating learning experience. Well, it didn't stop there because the next port of call with your time was to move to become the finance director at Coles, which was clearly a household name, but a different business altogether, a supermarket and, you know, with the supply chain requirements and the, I mean, phenomenal number of employees national presence and you got really into that role in terms of a finance director's role which which was interesting because you were md and ceo of west farmers insurance coming in to a finance director role with coles which was you know i'm not sure if that was progression or not but that's the way it was yeah well it was um look firstly i think something that west farmers has always done pretty well is we're prepared to give you know commercially financially literate people and opportunity across industries and sometimes 
you know, sometimes it's helpful to bring people in that have had different industry experience. So, you know, I was fortunate to have that opportunity and it was, in some ways, it was a sideways or backwards movement, but it, it really set me up for learning a lot more about retail, which I knew that if I wanted to continue my career at West Farmers, that was, that was quite important. And Coles was a an in, you know, very big and complex business that was going through a fairly significant turnaround at the time. So yes. there, was, there was plenty to do. When you look at Coles and and the nature of it's an everyday place that people would visit. You know, when you go on your on your weekends, you know, do you hear were you just hearing about how Coles was going the whole time? Everyone was pretty ha- pretty happy to give you their opinion. Oh look, absolutely. There's <laughs> uh, you know, no shortage of <laughs> barbecue kind of conversations and advice that you whether you wanted the advice or not. But I think what we you know, part of what I learned at Coles, we had some fantastic uh, leaders, retail leaders, and they were very intense and every day they were in stores. Uh, and all the leadership team, even you know me as CFO, there was an expectation that, that I was out there looking at the stores day in, day out. And, you know, on the weekend, I found myself drawn to the stores <laughs> to see what was going on yes. and to observe it. So you do you know, it is one of those industries where you really live and breathe it. Was it at that stage, Rob, when you were running the finances side of Coles that we had data coming through every day? Like you could see it like through software or, you know, th- or not like an app, but, you know, you could see it? Yes, we, we certainly could. And in fact, we did have the ability to look at hourly sales if we wanted. But, you know, there's a limited utility in looking at sales on an hourly basis. But coming into Christmas when... Yeah, you needed to make sure that you're clearing through the the fresh prawns and the ham and the turkey. <laughs> uh, many of our team were looking at sales on an hourly basis. That that's kind of what retail's about. Um, but look, I think you you know there is no shortage of data. You you know you've got a lot of it there. But really, the art is to focus in on the things that really matter. Uh, and so that's what I tried to do. Yeah, sure. I just wanted to then maybe just pivot a little bit back to rowing for a moment. During this period of time, you saw an opportunity to start to give back to rowing in terms of you became or you were appointed president and chairman of Rowing Australia, which is the governing body of the sport of rowing in Australia. That was an opportunity. You've been there for nine years or so now. Tell me a little bit about that because I know you said when you were starting out, Australia was really strong with rowing. How was it when you joined as president of Rowing Australia? Well, you know, rowing had still gone on and had a lot of successes through 2004, 2008 Olympics, certainly. You know, after, after 2012, uh, what had happened was a lot of other nations had moved to more centralised professional programs and Australia was still had very much a fragmented approach. You know, we had great athletes, we had great coaches, but something wasn't quite working. Um, and the sport had also got itself into some financial challenges. Right. Not severe, but really were, you know, getting to the end of each year with no money in the, you know, in, in the kitty and, and having to make compromises. So, you know, part of my role um, was supporting the team to move to some centralised training centres for our elite team, uh, building a stronger pathway program and trying to, you know, trying to bring some more private funding in to support the government funding. So yes. yeah, it was an opportunity for a bit of change and renewal. 
Um, but I am yeah getting ready to hand over to someone else over the next year. Oh, okay. <laughs> <You've> <laughs> time, done time for someone else. Nearly 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. And how are we looking for the next Olympics? Oh, look, I think we're in pretty good shape. Um, we've qualified a lot of crews for the Olympics already, the Olympics and Paralympics. We've got many medal prospects and, you know, a few gold medal prospects. Uh, we're really fortunate as a sport not only to get strong funding from the government but also – uh, Gina Reinhardt has invested a lot in our sport through Hancock that goes directly to our athletes. And that is a real game changer because, yes. you know, most Olympic athletes, uh, you know, other than a very small number that have a lot of sponsorships, I think the average income of the of an Olympic athlete is about $20,000 a year. Right. <laughs> so well below the minimum wage. So, her, you know, Gina's funding obviously is uh, a real game changer for them in keeping them in the sport for longer and, uh, sets us up well for the Olympics. It's hugely generous on Absolutely. her behalf. Yeah. Yep. And and that w- really gives us half a chance to achieve the w- where we think we might be able to get with the medal prospects. I mean, in rowing alone, are we likely to – have we got potential teams that could take away gold? We, we certainly do. That, you know, we would – well, we'd love to win two or three golds. Yes, <laughs> yes. But uh, I think anything less than one gold would be a bit disappointed. Uh, but then there's probably five crews that could quite genuinely win uh, win medals. So, you know, we have an important role to play as part of the Australian medal tally. Yeah. Oh, the, let's hope. Um, so just coming back, you, you're still doing the journey in West Farmers. And I, I note here that in 2015, you were made Managing Director in Financial Services, but it's a role you only kept for just less than a year. Then you went to managing director of the industrial division, which was a role you've had for a long time. And then you went to chief executive officer in 2017. It's quite a condensed timeline in there, but you you clearly were starting to look at opportunities up towards where you are now. Was that the way it was being planned at that point back in 15? Unbeknown to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I think to be honest, the... Managing Director of Financial Services was in a way a bit of a holding pattern role. And, you know, we do that at West Farmers from time to time uh, that, you know, if, if an executive, someone that we want to retain within the group is in between roles, we sometimes create roles. Like they, they obviously have some meaning around them. And at the time we were evaluating a number of financial services opportunities. We weren't sure if it was the right thing to invest in but I played a business development role there together with Coles Financial Services. Uh, But it was a bit of a holding pattern role. But then the opportunity, Richard made some leadership changes and that gave me the opportunity to oversee the the various industrial businesses, which uh, covered the coal mining businesses, industrial and safety and our chemicals, fertiliser and energy group. Yes. Which then were going well? Were they powering or was it a bit of a challenge? They were... Actually, chemicals, fertilisers and energy was going pretty well. The coal division was at a difficult stage in the cycle. Prices were quite low. We had some pretty uh, difficult contracts to manage through and our industrial and safety business had been through a bit of a boom through the mining boom but then come out the other side in in difficult shape. So, you know, we had strong teams in each division but my role was more of a, a bit of a portfolio role overseeing some of the capital allocation decisions and... Uh, focusing in on some of the key strategic projects. Uh, so it was the type of stuff that 
at the time, I, I you know, Richard and Terry Bowen had a lot to a lot to deal with at a portfolio level. Yes. And I guess um, they saw an opportunity for me to pick up some of the slack across the industrial businesses. Rob, it's at this point, it you've had a really diverse look at the business. You, you've wor- worked across a lot of the roles. You've got a detail across some pretty um, extreme minutiae within the business. This all clearly contributed to uh, being appointed in 2017 Managing Director and CEO of West Farmers. Just to pause there, how did that – you talk about big moments in your life you know, and it, we did touch on the point that you started with West Farmers in 1993, came back into it, but how did it feel – in terms of a sense of achievement or in terms of a sense of team, you know, in terms of contr- contribution to an organisation to be awarded that, well, what is a, an extremely sought-after role in corporate world? Well, I think uh, look, the first thing is that in the couple of years leading up to being offered the role, I, I think I'd kind of made peace with myself in that I wasn't as driven by the next role. I was more driven by just embracing the role I was in and continuing to learn and enjoy life and enjoy business and be better at at what I did because I felt I had a fantastic role as MD of industrials and there was a lot of exciting stuff going on. But I think for me personally, I had, you know, of course I wanted the role, but it wasn't something I was actively... (laughs) campaigning for if you know what yeah, i mean yes. I, i'd made peace with myself so then when when the opportunity arose and i was offered the role yes it was um you know it was very humbling and you know i remember mike saying to me look how would you feel about being the eighth ceo of west farmers and even just that message really sunk in and hit home that gee and the eighth ceo in over 100 years that's a big responsibility yes um you know, it's a bit like you feel at the start of a rowing race. It's like, gee, I better not stuff this up. <laughs> I better not catch a crab. I better, <laughs> yeah, this is a really big deal. Um, so I think you, you know, I couldn't help but be struck by just the, the, the sense of responsibility and the obligation and the importance of the role, and really just staying true to what West Farmer stands for, and you know, trying to do your best to, you know. Um, reinforce all the good things that are core to the West Farmers model. Well, for the listener, Rob was appointed Managing Director and and CEO of West Farmers in November 17, and he's highlighted a point of this, but joining the well-known names of John Benison, who held the role from 74 to 84, Trevor Eastwood, who held the role from 84 to 92, Michael Cheney, who held the role from 92 to 2005, and Richard Goiter, who held the role from 2005 to 2017. The highlight here is that Rob was the eighth chief executive in West Farmers in its 100-plus year existence. And I, I went back and I looked at the 2017 annual report. There's a, bear with me, Rob, but this is a message from Michael Cheney, AO, quote, Competition is strong across all of our markets, with new players entering the field and new products and processes challenging the status quo. But that has always been the case. The pace of change may be faster today, but that simply highlights the need to keep innovating. 
This, I think, has been a strength of West Farmers since it listed in 1984. In that context, it is instructive to consider the growth of the company over those 33 years, when its market value has increased 600-fold, from $80 million on listing to $48 billion today. During that period, $22.3 billion of net new equity has been raised and $23.3 billion of dividends have been paid to shareholders, meaning that the whole $48 billion of increased shareholder value has come from business growth. The task, of course, is to continue that record of success, but I believe we have the management team, culture and systems to achieve that. Here we are in 2023 after six years in a row. West Farmers currently has a share price of $52 and a market cap of $59 billion. It begs the question, when you got awarded that role, did you have a five-year plan in place? Did you have an understanding of what Rob Scott was going to do to put a stamp on this amazing organisation that was steeped in such amazing history? There were Look, there are areas that I, to start with, I think the most important thing I needed to do was just to keep reinforcing our the clarity of focus on our core objective, which is to deliver a satisfactory return to shareholders. Yeah, uh, that has been the consistent objective of West Farmers since 1984, since the listing. And yeah, you know, a day that a day doesn't go by where I don't continue to reinforce how important that is. And it's easy to say, but it's it's quite hard for many businesses to do. Like a lot of businesses do things that don't have anything to do with creating long-term shareholder value. Uh, secondly, staying true to our values. Um, and, you know, that's really important as well. Just expand on the values because it's such an important part of West Farmers. Uh, you know, you you stay true to the values. Yeah, well, well, I think, look, some of, if you look at our list of values, they're not that unique. You know, the, the concepts of openness, accountability, um, you know, integrity and um, entrepreneurial spirit. But I think what, what I'd say we try and bring to life a bit more, those two accountabilities of uh, openness and accountability, they're just so critical in a decentralised model. Yes. So, you know, we believe strongly that conglomerates can only be successful if you have a lean a really, really lean, high-caliber corporate office and divisional autonomy that really empowers your divisional teams to be the best they can be. Now, really tight controls centrally around capital allocation. That's critical. Yes. Um, and then that sense of openness, you, you know, you, you can't have the accountability unless you're going to be very open, unless bad news travels faster than good news, unless, you know, High performance is also is also about being open about what's not working, what needs to improve. So those values are just so critical. And then entrepreneurial spirit, we are big believers that as companies get bigger, they risk becoming bureaucratic, uh, slow to move, disconnected from the coalface. So we want to try and retain that entrepreneurial spirit within our business. So they are the things that we've tried. You know, I, I try and reinforce across the group and. At the end of the day, it's about making sure we have leaders across the group that feel as passionate about those values as I do. You're one of the biggest employers in Australia. How, how's the internal communications work? Do you do you manage to get that reach out there? Uh, well, we look. First of all, we have really good. Well, what matters most is that the people that run our divisions, the leaders that run our divisions, feel as passionate 
about our corporate objective and our values as I do. Fantastic. Uh, so really, if you step back and say the most important part of my role, it's really two things. It's making sure we've got the right people running our divisions and then secondly, making sure we make the right capital allocation decisions. Yes. They're the two most important things. There's obviously a lot of other things we do day in, day out, but that's con- that is what creates value. Um, so, you know, I'm a big believer in the power of the West Farmers model, uh, but we need to keep working on it and we need to make sure it is, you know, it is working effectively. You had to make some pretty big decisions when you started. So, for example, the Bunnings UK business, coal assets, and, and the demerger of coals. Those are pretty significant steps for you when you took the role on. However, coming right back, you did have that intimate knowledge of the business and you could see where the direction you thought the business should be going. How did that sort of process work with you being so new to the role? Uh, well, the fact, as you say, Tim, that I'd been part of the part of the group for a while, I knew a lot of the issues and the drivers of value and the issues within the divisions. So I knew we had a problem in the UK with Bunnings um, and I knew we needed to do a lot of work and work out really quickly what we're going to do. Um, I did have a personal view that demerging coals was going to create a lot of shareholder value for West Farmers. I knew it would be a, you know, a very complex thing to execute and, you know, it's not an easy thing to sell your biggest business. Like no. a, a lot of listed companies don't like getting smaller. But coming back to our, our reason for being as a company, there's nothing in our shareholder objective about scale. It's all about shareholder returns. Yes. Um, and then coal, we knew we needed to evaluate that. So with, you know, with the support of Anthony Giannotti, our new CFO, we just set about doing the work, uh, doing all the analysis, and ultimately got the the board support towards executing those transactions. And uh, obviously the Bunnings UK situation was really difficult, uh, but that was one of those ones where you just had to take a lot of the emotion out of it and just look at it very objectively and say, what is the best thing for shareholders from today onwards? Yes. And, you know, whatever we do, let's make sure we do it in in a manner that is consistent with our values. And when you apply that lens, it was actually quite an easy decision to make, notwithstanding the fact it was you know, emotionally for many people a very challenging time. Yes, yes. There's a lot of discipline that goes into those decisions to follow the pathway that's been set before you or follow the West Farmers way or follow that shareholder return. Where did you draw your decision making from? Well, look, I think I drew a lot on my West Farmers experience and the leaders that had come before me, but whether it's Richard or, you know, Richard's you know, parting advice to me was, Rob, you know, if you want to make changes and um, you want to get on with things, you know, go hard and go early, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I couldn't have had more support from Richard around the handover and in terms of setting me up for success. Um, and then I knew with you know, off the back of Mike Cheney, Trevor Eastwood, uh, we needed to just make the decisions that were going to be in the, the interests of shareholders over the long term. Yeah. Um, like ultimately you get, you know, you, there's a lot of noise out there in capital markets. There's a lot of people with different opinions internally, externally, and that's where having a core group of people around you that are really objective 
not afraid to challenge you and just doing the work, looking at things objectively and being being prepared to to own a decision and follow through with it. That's what, you know, that's what I learned. Certainly it was a all of those decisions were a big team effort and I I guess I just was fortunate to be the one to have the opportunity to lead it. Yeah, sure, sure. It brings us through to present day. I talked about the growth that you've experienced over your period of time. One of the things I was just going to ask you, though, before we get into that is through this period, how have you been able to work through work-life balance? Rob, it's a really challenging one for top-level executives, particularly at your level. How have you been able to do it? Well, the word balance, I think, is a, a difficult one, and yeah. I know this might not be very popular but I'd um, or politically correct to say, but I don't think the word balance and high performance goes together. Like if you want to be involved in high performance, if you want to achieve something remarkable in sport, in art, in business, in anything, in the community, you've got to push boundaries, right? You've got to get out of your comfort zone and you've got to put yourself into positions of dif- discomfort from time to time. Yeah. And there's nothing about that that is balance. Um, <laughs> but what I think you need to learn is you need to learn how to pace yourself. You need to learn how to manage your energy, um, you know, and I think it's also really important that you bring the team along with you. Uh, but for me, the way I try and deal with that, it just comes back to my own health. That if I'm, you know, if I feel that I'm physically healthy, I tend to perform a lot better at work. I'm a lot, uh, probably more fun to be around. Yes. And, you know, I know my, you know, my wife Liz will, you know, if she can see I'm stressed, she'll, you know, say, you, you got to go for a run or go to the gym or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, Let off a bit of steam. Yeah. So it's not about balance. I think it's just about, for me, it's about got to exercise every day, got to be physically fit. Um, my family and my friends are really important and I get energy from being around them and you know that's how I that's how I find that sense of balance if you use that word. Oh, thanks for sharing that Rob it's, it's interesting because you know here we are in present day and it often comes up you know work-life balance with with everyone just trying to find that elusive balance but it's it is very interesting you can't go and try and win a gold medal without with, with balance. <laughs> Well, some, sometimes I think you just got to accept that it's not going to be – you can have balance, right, but you're probably not going to achieve high performance. Yeah. So I think you have to accept that if you're trying to achieve high performance, there's going to be times in your life where there's not a lot of balance. But you also need to understand, a bit like if you're, if you're trying to win the Olympics, right, you, you're gonna, if you're going to put in 100% on that day, uh, you need to prepare to be able to do that. So if you're operating at 100% in the four weeks leading up to the Olympics, you're not going to operate at 100% when you need to. No. <laughs> so I think pacing, you know, pacing yourself and recharging when you have the opportunity to recharge. Because what, at least what I find is in leadership, a bit like in sport, there are probably 10 to 12 days a year where you have to put everything out there, <laughs> everything on the line. Yeah. And if you're, you know, the stereotypical leader that's operating – 24 7 100 miles an hour all the time when you really need to dig deep or make that really important decision or engage a team at a critical moment you're not going to have the capacity to do it no no oh thanks rob so if we come forward to present day 
at the moment, we've got a situation, we've got a, a rising interest rate environment, we've got cost of living pressures. Uh, West Farmers is in some divisions which are, are really interesting in light of those those pressures. And if we looked at Bunnings, I just wanted to understand a little bit from your perspective, with your journey through West Farmers, Bunnings has been such an amazing business and still remains an amazing business. How do you continue to keep it growing and keep it the way that it's in such great shape? Well, look, it starts with having great leadership and also ensuring that the team at Bunnings are always challenging themselves to to keep evolving the business. I think one of the probably the greatest risks of a successful business like Bunnings is the risk of complacency or hubris. So, you know, it's really important and it's great that we've got leaders in the team that are very ambitious and looking to keep improving. There's a lot of diversity to the Bunnings business across trade and retail yes. and commercial. Um, Bunnings is continuing to expand its offer. You know, we've moved into pet products and cleaning products. We're doing more online. Um, we've developed a marketplace. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of opportunity. And I, I still see that, yeah, irrespective of what happens to the housing cycle or the economy, there's still another, you know, five to ten years of really clear and visible growth. Yes. That is within our, you know, within our grasp to go after. You combine that with Kmart, which is a, a low price leader. You know, I mean, that's had a phenomenal earnings for the last financial year. Kmart is something that's been growing over time. Is about a lot of work gone in to get it to that, you know, that significant earnings growth. Yeah. So Ian Bailey and the team at Kmart have they've done a remarkable job of digitising a lot of the back end processes within the business. Right. Uh, really facing into modernising the platform that supports the retail operations. And then 80% of what we sell is our own designed, own sourced and manufactured product. Uh, so it really does have a significant point of difference. And you know, we are starting to explore opportunities to sell product through wholesale arrangements internationally. Right. So, you know, I do think that there's a lot of opportunity ahead for the Kmart uh, group. And in this environment, have you found that Bunnings and Kmart is you know, clearly in a good position? It, it really helps at a time when customers are more value conscious to be the low price leader. Yeah. And you know, something that our, our business has really tried to reinforce is through COVID when stock was short and people were flushed with all the stimulus money and you know we kept our prices low because the reputation that businesses like Kmart, Bunnings and Officeworks have built from being you know, having lowest price, lowest prices, the price guarantee, you know, that is just so important in times like now. Yes, yes. If we looked across the whole gamut of divisions, one one of the bits that really would be amazing to understand is the power of data. So now if you look at the number of consumers you've got with Bunnings, you've got the number of consumers with Kmart, Officeworks, and now West Farmers Health, You've got a very, or you've got an amazing source of data to, to learn from. Is that part of the whole one past one digital effort to be able to capture that data and then allow the consumer to become part of what is a West Farmers an ecosystem of services, goods and services? Yeah, there's no doubt that 
data and customer insight is just so critically important for many businesses and retail in particular. And so what we're doing with One Digital and OnePass in particular is building, you know, building this data ecosystem that gives us, well, from a business point of view, more visibility on who our customers are. Yes. But most importantly, what it does is it makes it easier for customers to engage across our brands. And, you know, we're up against some fierce competitors, Amazon, even Timu now, that are very digitally engaged businesses. We're seeing the younger generation of customers, they, you know, they will go to their iPhone or their, you know, their smartphone before they go into a store. And we genuinely believe that OnePass and a lot of the features that we've developed around early access to different, you know, different events like Black Friday, the bonus points we offer for flybys in store, the free delivery, the express click and collect. These are really important ways of uh, engaging our customers both digitally and within the store. Well, it, it takes time to develop these processes and systems, but the efficiencies that get gained by someone being able to use their one pass, if I went into Officeworks, I can use the same pass in Bunnings, Kmart and Priceline. That's right. And look, at the end of the day, what matters most is that each of our brands, each of our businesses has a phenomenal offer. Yes. But what we're able to do by working together is leverage those data insights and create less friction for our most valuable customers that want to shop across our brands. Uh, And that's, you know, that ultimately helps us retain customers, grow customers, encourage customers to spend, you know, spend their money across our brands. Um, And that insight you know, being able to better understand our customers and deliver the products that they want when they want yes. is really important. And that could be by collection or by delivery. That's right. And also we're starting to leverage a lot of these insights into things like demand forecasting, the inventory levels we have across our, our stores. So all of that is just ultimately making our businesses more successful, more competitive. Um, and it's look, this is not new. You look around the world and many you know many very successful retail businesses are really using their their customer data effectively and you i'd say we're up we're going to see the same thing play out on the health side soon yes yes it's a it's a logical progression for this but with one digital one pass and the collection of the divisions how do you see ai having a role in this going forward because you're going to have so much data that's in patterns that is logically uh, decipherable through AI and how that will be able to enhance efficiencies within the business. Well, we're already using a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, in a whole lot of business processes across the group. And I'd say Kmart's probably one of the most advanced. They're using uh, they're using machine learning to, you know, help with product design, yes, uh, with demand planning and inventory management. But the generative AI, the new elements of large language models, we are experimenting in different areas: customer service, other, you know, team member productivity tools uh, to assist with the coding, coding efficiencies. But we're, I'd say, we're adopting a fast follower approach. We're quite cautious about the ethical and regulatory issues around generative AI. Yes. Um, and, you know, we'll be very mindful of some of those risks as we as we start to deploy new technology. It's moving fast though, isn't it, Rob? 
It certainly is. It certainly is. And I think it's just this is just one of these areas where your learning curve needs to be well ahead of your action curve. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, something or I'd say all of our leadership team, we are rapidly learning around uh, issues like generative AI and large language models. Um, but, you know, th- there's going to be a lot more to come in the years ahead. Oh, absolutely. I just want to concentrate a little bit or, or zero down into West Ceph and particularly lithium. So part of your annual report notes that you've got completed construction of the lithium concentrator in Kunana fed by Mount Holland and that earnings and cash flow will start to result from this business first half of next year, calendar year 24. I just wanted to get your views on lithium at the moment and from a West Farmer's perspective, from the way you do business and, you know, because you acquired that asset a while ago now and now you're at the, the well, the lithium concentrator is ready to go. So how, how are you seeing it? Well, I think our, you know, our entry into lithium was probably a bit different to many of the other investors in lithium here in WA, whereas we came at it from the perspective of a, a chemical manufacturer and a real interest in getting into not only spodumene concentrate but particularly lithium hydroxide. And our WESF team are incredibly experienced and skilled at chemical manufacturing. And what was interesting about the Mount Holland deposit was that there was a fantastic partner in SQM that was a world leader. Yes. But it was one of the best hard rock deposits in the world, really high grade, and, and that was going to give us the opportunity to deliver a really low cost base. So we felt that we had the skills from our experience in open cut mining with coal to chemical processing, uh, together with the refinery being adjacent to our chemical plant in Quinana. We felt there was a good chance together with SQM of us delivering a really successful project. And we, look, we're not smart enough to predict what the future price of lithium will be. And it's an emerging market that's going to have a lot of volatility. Uh, but what we were confident of is that we would be in a really strong position in the cost curve. We would be a reliable supplier. Um, we felt very strong about the hard rock opportunities with the high-grade reserves in Western Australia, and we felt that we could deliver a really good return on capital for our shareholders. So really nothing has changed. From mm. The only thing that's changed from our original investment decision has been that the you know, the prices are a lot higher now than they were when we originally invested. When you started, I noted that you've got some off-take agreements executed with Tier 1 customers. This was in the presentation. So you've already got that off-take ready to go. So it's a pretty important part of the equation. Yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, we've been fortunate to have some really high-quality non-Chinese counterparties and you know there really is you know time will tell but we think there is going to be something very attractive about being a a reliable ex-China producer of high quality lithium hydroxide Uh, and the heritage of our business is chemical engineering and processing you know we don't underestimate the challenges of getting a hydroxide plant working well uh, but we feel that with our team and the support of SQM we can you know we can have a really good go at it. It's interesting you mentioned that the lithium opportunities are evolving but ever-changing and I think mentioning the impact of China, there was an article in the Fin Review a couple of days ago, the Chinese ties exclude Australian lithium miners from US cash. Effectively, 
if I could just highlight one part of it, it says some of Australia's biggest lithium mines could be ineligible for US government subsidies after Washington issued rules excluding critical minerals with high levels of Chinese ownership or processing. It went through to say the US Department of Energy issued draft guidance on Saturday to find a foreign entity of concern as any company with more than 25% owned by Chinese, North Korean, Iranian or Russian shareholders. The article then did say, though, Australian miners are expected to be big winners out of Mr Biden's green agenda, which has incentivised US battery and car makers to source minerals such as lithium, nickel and cobalt from nations like Australia that have free trade agreements with the US. But China's role as the dominant customer and original investor in the Australian lithium sector will prevent many miners from accessing the subsidies while rewarding players such as West Farmers and Liontown Resources that have built non-Chinese lithium businesses in WA. That's pretty recent, but it's quite an interesting turn and in how things are playing out. It, it does put West Farmers in, an, in, a, in quite an enviable spot. I think uh, certainly some of the regulatory changes that are unfolding you know, are positive for Australian-owned uh, producers of lithium. At, look, at the end of the day, though, what really matters is that we can produce product at a really low cost and be a reliable producer. We're also evaluating opportunities to expand. We've got a phenomenal mine at Mount Holland. We have the ability to double the capacity of our project so there's a lot for us to get on with, but you know I think, as you say, the regulatory changes are moving in a you know a positive direction for us. But at the end of the day, we we just need to stay focused on delivering low cost, reliable product. Thanks, Rob. The article did say West farmers may need to keep a close watch on Chinese involvement with SQM, given Tianqi already owns 23.77 percent of the Chilean company. There's always something. There is at least with our you know with our project uh, we both take our share of the output right so in terms of the West farmers output it's 100 percent 100 percent West farmers controlled and owned okay just moving on know that healthcare is a really important part of the growth strategy of West farmers solid sales in priceline could you give us a bit of an insight in how you see health unfolding? And how West Farmers is, is looking at the next five-year plan? Well, we, look, we've been monitoring the health sector for many years. I've, you know, got probably 15 years we've been looking at different acquisition opportunities in health because we could see there is a very strong demand profile there. And you know, what we identified was the business of API had a whole lot of assets that were quite unique assets and areas where our skill set within West Farmers, such as retail execution, data and digital capabilities, supply chain management was really aligned. So API, one of the top three wholesalers, Priceline, one of the largest pharmacy networks, and then with the Sister Club program and some of the digital health businesses we now have with Instant Scripts and Sisu Health. So look, we're on a journey here. It's early yeah. days. I, I think our aspiration is to deliver value through providing more accessible and affordable health. You know, we are get, we're seeing an ageing population. The demands on government mm. around healthcare costs are just going up and up. Yes. There's a shortage of GPs. Hospitals are overflowing. And if we can play a role in providing better community health outcomes by better leveraging the scope of practice within pharmacy, 
providing better products and services through telehealth that are, that make healthcare more accessible, accessible. Yes. then I think that's a real win, uh, win-win. It's a win for our shareholders and it's a, a win for the Australian public. Oh, it's really interesting. Do you see acquisitions continuing in this space? Is it Because it's a growing space and there's a lot of activity globally around this area. Yeah, potentially there's more acquisitions, but you know it's interesting at West Farmers. I think this has been hard. I'm very hardwired around this. There may be acquisitions, but only if the numbers stack up. Right. All that, you know, acquisitions can be quite difficult, especially if you're having to pay a premium for control, or if it's a competitive process. We don't like bidding in a competitive process. So, the planets really need to line up in terms of making an acquisition uh, worthwhile. But I think the recent acquisitions we've made with uh, instant scripts um, and even the silk acquisition that it, yes. has just closed recently, they should be you know very complementary acquisitions that we've been able to acquire at a good price. I was reading and doing some research, Rob, with regards to you know your background and how you sort of j- your journey, and I I picked up a quote from Carrie, Carrie Lafrenz, senior journalist at the AFR, which I thought really summed it up. You said when you're part of a team that's trying to win a gold medal or win a world championship, in many ways what we're doing at West Farmers is no different. We may not sweat as much, but we're still trying to be internationally successful at what we do and indeed to be successful in our business, we need to be world class at what we do. I thought that was just outstanding and it really encapsulates what you've told us today and and, you've really given us some massive insights. Outside of work... I know you're married to Liz and she is a gold medalist, a water polo gold medalist in Sydney. That's a pretty, that was a pretty amazing period of time, wasn't it, in Sydney? It certainly was. And, you know, what was amazing about Liz's story and her team's story is they had to fight like mad to even get into the Olympics. So after winning the World Cup in 95, back then women's water... So when I won my medal at the 96 Olympics, women's water polo wasn't in the 96 Olympics. Is that right? Uh, so Liz and her teammates stormed a, an IOC press conference at Sydney Airport in their in their bathers <laughs> or cozies for your East Coast listeners. Yeah, and uh, and off the back of storming the IO the International Olympic Committee press conference, three or four weeks later, women's water polo was in the Olympics. Unbelievable! So, well uh, done. A great a great story for them. Absolutely. So you've been married for some time. You've got two children, Ben and Izzy. And we talked about Ben earlier. He, he went to school with my son. Amazing. He's had an amazing start. And he's also followed the rowing path. He has. Our, our kids aren't very original. Yeah, we did try to get them into tennis and other things that might pay a bit better than rowing and water polo. But <laughs> they seem to have uh, really you know, found, found a liking for both uh, rowing and water polo, respectively. And so Izzy's good at water polo? Uh, Izzy's very good, and she's just uh, managed to get a scholarship to Stanford. So, uh, oh, fantastic! So, yeah, great, great opportunity for her. And Ben's at Harvard. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah unreal. Outside of that, uh, you know, families are very important. You've got other things going on, though. You've got your chair of Rowing Australia. We mentioned earlier. You're a director of Brisbane 2032 Olympic Organising Committee, director of Gresham Partners, director of the Business Council of Australia. That's got a very important role to play. Hey, could you give us a little bit of an insight into that? Well, look, I th- yeah, I think the Business Council has an incredibly important role to play. They do 
you know, and look, I thought long and hard about should I join the board? Yes. Um, but I think there's almost an obligation to contribute uh, to the the policy debates and and try and contribute in a positive way to engaging all the stakeholders around policy that is good for good for the country. And I've really enjoyed being part of the business council. I think we've got a great board. The team do great policy work, and you know. I, it's really important that Australia cannot be successful. We can't create the jobs and the well-paid jobs unless business is successful. Yes. And we, we still have work to do to try and create this win-win scenario where the public realises that we will all be more successful, we'll all be more prosperous if business can be more successful, more prosperous. And, yeah, that, that I think is a really important role that we all need to contribute to. It's an interesting point you make. Because I was going to ask you, in your role, being such a, 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 a prestigious role in terms of having an influence, how do you think Australia is going generally? You know, business is included in that. I think Australia has just so much opportunity. And there are, compared to many other OECD nations, we have a lot of positives. We've got population growth. We've got a relatively stable political system here. And quality of life is you know, very high relative to other nations. Um, my concern is more that there is a risk that we are going through a process from a policy point of view where we're adding additional cost, additional complexity and reducing the flexibility of businesses to to adjust to the changing world around us. Yes. Um, so I think from a policy point of view, we need to be really careful. And, uh, you know, but notwithstanding that, I think we have... Uh, we have a lot to be proud of, a lot to look forward to, but what we can't we can't be complacent, and we can't ignore the fact that we are in a global economy, yeah, and we are competing head to head every day for capital, for talent, and for customers. Yes, yes, and that from a global perspective, and we need to be able to hold our own. That's correct. Yeah, the other flow on from that, as part of your role. I know that West Farmers is known well for its leadership. And this stems into how, you know, your thoughts on how Australia can go as well and, and how, where we can improve. And in West Farmers, it's known for its leadership and developing leaders. What are the principles? Because it's so clear that there are so many good leaders within West Farmers because of the way the organisation operates. Humility appears to play a very big role. But what are the principles that you try and encourage future leaders to embrace? Well, there are three three leadership competencies we talk a lot about. One is being commercial. That I don't think you, you're certainly not in West Farmers. You cannot be a successful leader in West Farmers unless you are commercial. Yeah, you won't become a general manager, let alone run a business if you're not commercial. And that all comes down to our purpose as a company is to deliver value to shareholders. Secondly, engaging people is critical, a critical part of leadership and engaging people at different levels of the organisation. Uh, and the final uh, important feature of leadership is delivering results. And it's not about what you say you're going to do, it's about what you actually deliver. Mm. And then, you know, over, overlaying that is, as you say, I think humility is important. Uh, also having a, a desire to keep learning. I think that you know, certainly some of the best leaders I have met are always learning. Yes. You know, always very eager to learn 
and the world is constantly changing. So you just have to keep learning to be effective. So I think they are some of the characteristics that we try and look for and encourage within our leadership cohort. Yes. Are most of your senior management, when you say learning, are they all still engaged in courses or they, you know, or is it more on the job training or? It's look at a, at a more senior level, it's more around, uh, yeah, on the job training, but we spend a lot of time internationally. So yes. you know, all of our managing directors, our group leadership team, we're always meeting with other companies around the world, experts in different areas, uh, learning about new things, new ways of doing things. So it's more, you know, it's more at that level. Obviously, at more junior levels, we encourage various training programs and executive education yes. uh, programs. But, you know, we see education as very much or learning as very much a lifelong journey for leaders. Yeah. Last question I had just in that on that similar theme. If you're 18 again, Rob, and now you know what you know now, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? And I could broaden that to say any 18-year-old now. But, you know, like you've clearly had an amazing career, amazing journey. You've set some goals in life. You've been able to achieve them. How would you portray that or communicate that back to someone who's in that space that you were once in? Uh, well, number one, buy as many West Farmers shares as you possibly <laughs> could. That's, that's That would be good advice. Um, look, I think that – and you did give me a heads up about this, Tim, and I, you know, I, the question is – you know, when do I stop, you know, writing a list of advice I should have listened to as an 18-year-old? But I think really if you cut to the chase with it, you know, my advice would be to surround yourself with people that are that give you energy in a positive way uh, and, you know, surround yourself with people that are trying to do something, something unique, something special that you get energy from. It doesn't matter what it is, but if it's, you know, a noble purpose, so long as it's a noble purpose – that you get excitement and energy from, then that's what you should do. Um, and that's what I've, you know, how I live my life, whether it's work or home or play, it's about surrounding myself with like-minded people that give me energy. Yeah, Life's too short uh, to surround yourself with people that drive you crazy <laughs> or, or sap your energy. So anyway, that would be my, my advice because at the end of the day, you've got to forge your own path, right? And I think... Uh, the last thing you need as an 18-year-old is an instruction booklet. Yeah, yeah. You'll probably stuff it up. <laughs> That's awesome, Rob. Well done. Well, look, it's been a wonderful chat. I, I really, uh, really, really just do appreciate you taking the time. As I said earlier, what an impressive life and career you've had so far. But taking time out for us at Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, there'll be a lot of people listening who've it will take a, a lot away from your insights and uh, your upbringing, leadership, the way you communicate, your values, all culminate into a pretty special story. And and knowing how busy and valuable your time is, we're lucky to have the opportunity. So thanks again, Rob. Thanks very much. Good on you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Euros Harley's Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out eurosharleys.com for more information. Euros Harley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.